Luke 2 in your Bibles, please. This is a familiar passage to us. Perhaps many of us take time on Christmas morning and read through this passage together. In fact, uh, on our Christmas service on Tuesday evening, we'll read through, uh, in part, this passage. This will be a part of what we'll read on Tuesday evening as we read the Christmas um, narrative together, the history of, of both prophecy and narrative in regard to Jesus Christ's birth. I'd like to read a few verses this morning, though we are going to focus in on just one. But look with me, if you would, in Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So begins the scene that we commonly refer to as the Christmas story. I'm always careful with that word story because in fact this is not just a story in the fairy tale sense, this is a narrative. It is history. We read of a man and a woman who traveled from their home in Nazareth of Galilee to that of Bethlehem in Judea in order that Joseph might be a part of the Roman census and thus pay their taxes for the year. It was an unwelcome journey for this family, seeing that Mary was pregnant with their child who was due to deliver at any time. Yet this circumstance was not without its expectation in Scripture. Micah 5 2 prophesied that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem Ephratah, in the city of Bethlehem, and that the family of Joseph, through the reality that his lineage was that of David, and Mary, whose lineage was that of David, all the way back, traced through Ruth, Boaz, time of the judges, would qualify this young couple to bear the Messiah. So Joseph and his pregnant wife Mary came to the city. When they got to the city, there was no room left for them in the inn, in the house where they had intended to stay. Now, this was probably not uncommon during the census. Such a mass flooding of people to one city would lead no room. And this was not that big of an issue, in fact. It was quite often that people in this time would not have room, perhaps, and they would go and they'd sleep in a stable or they'd sleep somewhere for the night, perhaps not in not with a roof over their head. Yet while they were there, the scriptures tell us the days were accomplished that Mary should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and she laid him in a manger that was in that particular stable where they were staying. These were fairly humble beginnings. Yet a joyous event, an unimpressive event per se, but a joyous event nonetheless. 
However, this humility and this unimpressive nature of the event whereby Mary gave birth to a son, laid him in a manger, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, was not mirrored in the events happening outside of the city that evening. There were shepherds. They were shepherds watching their flocks by night. These shepherds, as Bethlehem was characteristically a city of shepherds, were guarding their sheep, watching their sheep. It was evening. Many years prior to this, in those same hills outside of Bethlehem, there would have been a young man named David watching his own sheep, reporting back to his father, Jesse, as to the condition of those sheep that he was responsible for. This David would one day become king of Israel. But he would never forget those days where he guarded, where he watched the sheep on the hills of Bethlehem. He would even write about God as his great shepherd in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There came a point where God promised to this king, King David, that there would become a seed from him that would rule forever. That seed being the prophesied Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this same city of Bethlehem, this Messiah was to be born. These shepherds that evening were greeted by an angel of the Lord. And as they were greeted, the glory of this angel shone about them. They were afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This angel appears to these shepherds who are watching their sheep on the hills of Bethlehem. They're afraid. He says, fear not. I bring you great tidings, good tidings, great joy. Following this announcement, there appeared with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. And these were the words that they were singing on that night. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now in these words, the words that we're going to focus on today, we see not just a praise to God, but in fact within these words, we have a declaration of the very one who was born that evening in Jerusalem. And I would like us to study this phrase together. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, Goodwill toward men. And as we do so, I don't just want us to study this as this was the praise that the multitudes were crying out, but they were in fact crying out the character of the one who had been born. And I would like us to see that today. Three descriptions of our Lord Jesus Christ declared by the angels at the announcement of his birth. Three descriptions. Let's look at them together. We have the verse in uh, Luke 2.14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. We'll be singing a song after this sermon and that song reflects these words in the Latin. In part, the first phrase at least, Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. That's what that means. And as we do so, what we are singing is a portion of what the angel sang that night. 
the multitude sang that night a description of the character of our God. So let's look at the first description in that first phrase. Glory to God in the highest. The first description of our Lord Jesus Christ is that He is the highest glory of God or the highest glory to God. The book of John describes the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, in eternity past as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, before his name was Jesus, at his birth he was named Jesus, before that name he had been given this name, this description, the Word of God, an express declaration of God the Father unto men. When God the Son came to this earth in human form, something we often call his incarnation, he was given, according to prophecy and declaration, the name Jesus. Jesus being a name that literally means Jehovah is salvation. Now in verse 14 of John's gospel, the chapter 1 of John, we see a description of his incarnation. It says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Fast forward many chapters in the book of John, and in John 17, Jesus praying for his disciples, he would say this in verse 1. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. May I give you a picture of what we are seeing here? The angels and the multitudes sang to these shepherds, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward men. And as they sang glory to God in the highest, it was not just that they were reflecting glory upon God for what was occurring, though that is the case, but they were reflecting the very person of the one who was lying in the manger that evening. The one who was the Word of God. The one who became flesh and dwelt among us and they beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The one who was full of grace and truth full of charis and aletheia. That's where my girls' names come from. Grace and truth. And then in John 17, Jesus Christ praying to God, He says, God, glorify Thy Son in order that Thy Son might glorify Thee. Jesus Christ came to this earth born in a manger, born very lowly, born in very inauspicious circumstances, but He was born the very glory of God in flesh. He came as the express image of God, the grand declaration of God's glory. God's only begotten Son sent to this earth as a loving redemptor. So Jesus Christ is the express and manifest glory of God. What does that mean to a man or to a woman or to a child sitting here this morning? As we hear those words, glory to God in the highest, and we consider, we, we desire the glory of God, we consider the glory of God, we recognize Jesus Christ to be the express glory of God, what should that mean for our own lives? Well, 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. How is it that we can do all to the glory of God? Well, we know many ways that we can glorify God. How can we know what it is that does glorify God? Well, may I encourage you that Jesus Christ is the express image of God. That Jesus Christ is the glory of God in flesh. And so, 
To glorify God is to be conformed to the image of Christ. To glorify God is to conform ourselves to the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. To glorify God is to be living our lives in such a way that we are reflecting Christ. So how can it be that we as a church can glorify God? When we as a church are reflecting Jesus Christ in what we do and in how we do it. How is it that you, Father, Mother, can glorify Christ? It is by living out your marriage. It is by raising your children. It is by reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ in your own actions. How is it that you, individual, you, child, can truly glorify God as you ought? It is by, whether you're eating or drinking or whatsoever you do, reflecting the person, the work, and the message of the Lord Jesus Christ in how you do it and in what you do. The angels announced on that hilltop that evening, glory to God in the highest, and certainly Jesus Christ is the highest glory of God. Our second description that we see in this verse, and on earth, peace. And on earth, peace. Now, if there's one thing that this earth does not have, if there's one thing that you cannot find upon this earth, it is peace. For centuries, for millennia, men have been trying to secure and seeking peace on this earth. Men have sought peace in manifold ways. We could probably spend the rest of this service counting the ways in which men have tried to seek peace upon this earth. Men have tried to seek peace through charity. If we can just give enough money to enough people, there will be peace. Because peace comes from the haves and the have-nots. There will be peace if people can just have enough food, enough clean water, enough health care, enough money. Men have sought peace. Men have sought peace through compromise. I'll give this up, you give that up. We'll meet in the middle and we'll have peace. Men have sought peace through education. If people can just be educated enough, then there will finally be peace. All conflict is based upon lack of education. We can, if we can just educate people enough, we'll find peace. Men have sought peace through war, strangely enough. If I can just conquer everyone else, then finally I can create peace. If I can have this this, this heavy-handed rulership upon others, that I can create peace with the sword. Men have sought peace through force. You will be peaceful. I will make you peaceful. Men have sought peace from the day that war began. And men have failed at every turn to find an answer to peace. World War I was to be the war that ended all wars. That declaration that this would finally be the last war. Evil would finally be defeated. Good would prevail and there would be no more war. Well, that worked out for a couple of years. Until World War II. And as we think about an American context. Numerous wars since then. Korean War. Conflict. Vietnam War or conflict. Gulf War. The endless wars that we have now. Each of these supposing to be that war that would end all. And yet peace never comes. So I ask a question this morning and I would like you to truly think about it. 
what would it take to have peace upon this earth? What would it take to have peace upon this earth? It would take a fundamental change in people, would it not? It would take a fundamental change in the very nature of people. Because people cannot agree. And as we sang this morning, one day, one day that change will take place. One day that little child, born in a manger, in this small town called Bethlehem, the most humble of beginnings, and yet just outside the city as Jesus Christ laid in that manger was angels and a multitude of heavenly hosts announcing to the shepherds the birth of the Savior and crying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Peace on earth. This little child known as Jesus would be spoken of in Isaiah by different names. Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah would go on to say that the increase of his government and peace would have no end. That the peace that is found through Jesus Christ would have no end. Wow. If only the world could get a hold of where peace is found. If they would stop trying to find peace through education and through charities and through wars. And they would seek peace from the one who is the Prince of Peace. This child would do what no man in history has ever done. He who grew up in this small town of Nazareth. Would accomplish what humanity only dreams of but cannot achieve. Even under the best of circumstances. This child would grow to be a man, would die for the sins of the world, would rise again the third day, would ascend unto God, and would promise at his ascension that he was coming in like manner as when he left. And when he comes again, he will be coming as the Prince of Peace. He will certainly come conquering the wicked. But his government will reign and rule in peace. Consider what the Bible says as we think about Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace. Consider what the Bible says about the peace of a man both before and after accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Romans 3, 10-18 says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one, Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, without Jesus Christ, before a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no peace. The way of peace is not known. Peace is not found outside of Jesus Christ. Without Christ, the way of peace is unknown. Enter the Prince of Peace, 
who according to Colossians 1.20 has made peace through the blood of his cross. How? How has he made peace through the blood of his cross? Well, Isaiah 53, that great prophecy of the suffering servant describes Jesus Christ as receiving the chastisement of our peace upon him. With his stripes we are healed. We had no peace with God until the day where Jesus Christ took upon himself our payment for sin, our punishment, and the peace of God, the, the, the chastisement of that peace, that thing that separated your peace with God was removed by the suffering and death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And so peace with God is purchased with Christ's blood so that all who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior become free recipients of that peace. And now we have peace with God. Romans 5, 1. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God Through our Lord Jesus Christ. But not just peace with God. We can also have peace with men. Ephesians 2.14 For he is our peace. Who hath made both one. And hath broken down the middle wall of partition. Between us. Speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles. Everyone in Christ is one. And so whether we talk about peace. On a multinational level. On a national level. On a local level. On a familial level. Whether peace with man or peace with God, rest assured there is no policy or agreement that will ever secure peace upon this earth. No gun law will ever secure peace upon this earth. No treaty will ever secure peace upon this earth. Peace on this earth will only come on the day Jesus Christ brings it with him. On the back of a white horse upon whom rides one that is called faithful and true and his name is called the word of God. Revelation 19, 11, and 12. And so when you hear on the news those who would speak out for peace, those who are seeking multinational or national peace, it's a wonderful goal. But let that effort toward peace remind you of the one and only Prince of Peace. Let that effort toward peace remind you that there is coming a day. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. When Jesus Christ will come. And there will be, in fact, peace on earth. My question toward you as we consider the second point is, do you have peace with God today? We've talked about peace with God coming only through believing on Jesus Christ unto salvation. Have you found that peace with God? If not, let today be the day as we consider the Prince of Peace that Jesus Christ becomes your Savior and you receive the peace of God bought for you with Christ's blood. Let us consider the final description this morning. The great multitude said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Finally, good will toward men. Goodwill toward men. Now, if you look at a more recent translation, you're going to find a very different phrase than the one that I've just read to you, the one that we typically associate with this announcement. Whereas the KJV says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, good peace, goodwill toward men. 
Other translations tend to follow the trend or the example set by the American Standard Version in 1901, which translates it, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. Or among those with whom God has favor. Now this change is not simply an alteration of how they understood the Greek, but it is a fundamental change in the Greek text behind it. The King James, using the Textus Receptus, the other versions, every other version, relying upon the Greek critical text, there is a fundamental change in wording that has happened between the Textus Receptus and this other text, the critical text. In the Greek Textus Receptus, the last word, which the King James Version translates goodwill, functions as the subject of the entire thought. So, glory is the subject which is given to God, peace is the subject which is given to the earth, and goodwill is the subject which is given to men. So there's, very, there's three very distinct points here. Now that is changed in the critical text, that is changed in the other versions. They changed its use from a subject to an attribute or a characteristic given to men. So instead of God's goodwill going out to men, they say peace goes out to men, but only to those men upon whom God's goodwill rests. Now, this change changes the meaning very strongly of what's being said here. The angels, and this is why I believe that the, the King James and the Textus Receptus, in turn, is probably more along the lines of exactly what the angels were looking for, looking to express. The angels were announcing the birth of the King and Messiah who had come. Christ's purpose was to offer the kingdom to Israel and ultimately to die for the sin of the world. Who are these favored ones then that would receive peace? If, it, if the reading is supposed to be On earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. Who are those with whom God is pleased that are receiving this peace? Is it those who would accept his message? Well, this makes sense, as only those who believe on Jesus Christ would be saved, would enter into the peace of God. But why would an exclusive group be mentioned here? May I remind you, back a few verses... Verse 10, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to who? All people. All people. So why would these good tidings of great joy that are being announced to all people then be whittled down to this group upon whom God's favor rests? That doesn't make sense within the context at all. The angel had just told the shepherds that they brought good news and tidings of great joy to all people. And now the angels are going to reserve peace only for those upon whom God's favor rests. That really does not make contextual sense at all. So instead we read, glory to God in the highest. Glory goes to God. Peace on earth. Peace would be upon the earth. Prophesying of Christ's coming and his earthly kingdom. Which will be a kingdom upon the entire earth, and goodwill toward men, prophesying of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. 
And so that's why I've broken it up the way I have. If you're reading another version or if you have another version that you are referencing, you might have been confused as to why I broke it up the way I did. I do so because the King James breaks it up, the Textus Receptus breaks it up that way, and I believe that contextually that is a superior understanding of the passage. With that said, let's refocus. What is goodwill? Well, the Greek word behind the English translation is the word, um, excuse me, um, Udokia, which is found only nine times in the New Testament. This word means desire or delight. May I read you a few verses within which this word is found? Only nine times in the New Testament. Let me read you a few of these verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men can count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. Word. There's that word. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 John 2.2 2. And he is the propitiation, there's the word, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We see this word used in a very salvific context because that is the intent of the word. Goodwill toward men, propitiation toward men, long-suffering toward men, love toward men, goodwill toward men. As Jesus lay in the manger on that evening, wrapped in swaddling clothes, he was, in fact, not just bringing goodwill toward men, but he was the goodwill toward men. He was the very pinnacle of God's glory. He was the very realization of peace upon this earth, but he was also the very incarnation of God's goodwill unto men. As we consider this this morning, consider the magnitude of this announcement as it was made by this multitude unto the shepherds as they watched their flocks that evening. The words which these angels sang in praise to God were not simply describing the situation as it unfolded, were not simply describing the future of the world because of what was happening, but their praise was literally describing the very child that was lying in the manger. Certainly, the ministry of Jesus Christ, His death, His resurrection, all of those aspects of Jesus Christ's life, death, would bring God glory, but he was, in fact, himself the glory of God. Certainly, his ministry, his death, his resurrection purchased for all men goodwill and true peace. But as the little babe lay in that manger, he was the peace that would come upon the earth. He was the goodwill that would be toward men. And so may I encourage you, as you spend time with your family this Tuesday, and as, by God's grace, you rejoin us this Tuesday evening for a time of worship together, as perhaps you read through the Christmas story with your family, as you hear the songs on the radio, or you place that CD in that sings Angels We Have Heard on High, May I encourage you to take a moment 
and meditate a little bit deeper on the implication of those words. In excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. And allow your mind to run beyond just that phrase. To peace on earth. And goodwill toward men. And as you do so. Do not think of them just as descriptions of what Jesus Christ brought. But may I encourage you to think of them as descriptions of who Jesus Christ is. Let's pray together.